Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. My co-host and I love doing what we're doing. Co-host that is Brandon Stiver. I'm Phil Dark. And, you know, hopefully that's old news to you. Hopefully that is something you've been part of this conversation for a really, really long time, you know, over 200 episodes, which I still get blown away by that every time I say it. Um, but Brandon, how are you doing today? Doing good, man. I'm, I'm doing well. It's it's fall now, you know, uh, CAFO Summit's behind us, you know, uh, for us, Replanted is behind us at this point. So yeah, just kind of settling in, I guess, with, with whatever the grind is going to be as uh, my kids are back in school and yeah, we're doing okay though. All is well. How about yeah. you, man? You, you guys hanging in there? Yeah, you got some family of, stuff going on. Yeah, your, your daughter you know. got injured. What's going on, dude? Yeah, broke her clavicle, which is a bummer collarbone for those of you who are not uh, in the know on that one, and hopefully not many people are. Hopefully, I know it is the most commonly broken bone in the body, which is a little known fact. At least it was little known to me. Maybe it's a well known fact. I don't know. But uh, I just got back from a great church planting conference last week. Um, and by the time this, uh, this airs, we will, like you said, KFO will be behind us. The, uh, global sports movement, we have a, a great church conference, uh, coming up here with the sports ministry stuff that I'm working on. Uh, absolutely love doing all this stuff, get excited about all these different things. And speaking of doing stuff around the world and global, whatever, we got a great, great guest today. Good, you know, good friend of mine. Uh, over the years, we've been able to to connect in different spots in Southeast Asia. Was able to spend some time with him in his house in Cambodia, and we had a great conversation. Shared some coffee or probably some tea in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, at the World Without Orphans Forum a couple times. But uh, it's none other than Craig Greenfield. Um, why don't you give a little, uh, little further infield, in, uh, intro on uh, exactly what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, well, we're really excited to get Craig in here. Uh, for those that don't know Craig, uh, he started the Alongsiders International, which is this awesome organization that is really, uh, it's it's kind of like, a, almost like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, but kind of in the global south. And they've launched all these chapters in various countries. He's an author. We're going to get to uh, talk about his new book, Subversive Mission, which I just really loved reading. Uh, so, yeah, Craig is Craig's the real deal, man, and uh, somebody that I know has inspired a lot of people when it comes to uh, loving orphan and vulnerable children with excellence, but also having a really um, thoughtful engagement when it comes to uh, missions. So uh, we're really excited to uh, to get Craig in here, and this is my first time uh, talking with him. So uh, word is he might swing through Tacoma not too long from now, where I might be able to grab my own coffee with him. But uh, but for right now, it's just great to catch up with him here on Zoom. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to get to it. Well, Craig, it is so great to have you here on Think Orphan Podcast again. And those, if you haven't listened uh, for a very long time, folks, you might not know this is again because I just looked. It was, it first released May 31st, 2016. So over six years ago, which means we recorded it even earlier than that. So, Craig, man, how you doing and what you've been up to in the last few years? Right on. Thanks. It's uh it's good to be back. Um yeah, I've been I've been a little busy. Um I I actually got diagnosed with cancer and oh um, as 
as you can imagine, one of those one of those life events that kind of mm-hmm. throws you for a six. And um, I, I guess I was crying out to God. I was saying, you know, God, I've spent my life uh, working with orphans and vulnerable children. Are my own children now going to be fatherless? Mm. Um, and uh, God didn't answer that question, although I was eventually, you know, went through the healing process. But I felt like God was asking me the, a question back. If you only had five years left on this earth, what would you do with it? Mm. Um so yeah, I guess that that made me kind of go back to to square one and and look at what was happening in my life and what I was investing my life in. And, and for me, that was for, perhaps for some of your listeners too, to invest my life in walking alongside the most vulnerable children in the world. And um, as a result of that, we launched the Alongsiders movement. Um, which basically we ask young Christians around the world to make a simple but powerful commitment to walk alongside one vulnerable child each. And um, that has now spread to 25 countries, about 16,000 children and youth involved, and um, really just saw an explosive, explosive growth during COVID, tripled in size. So it's, it's beautiful to see these uh, as a result of, you know, so one of the darkest moments of my life, God's spirit moving and bringing life um, for and transformation for vulnerable children all around the world. Yeah, you know, and that's so exciting to me because I remember sitting in your upstairs of your place in, in Phnom Penh. Um, when you were introducing to me the online training that you were finishing up to be able to, you know, share that alongsiders ministry and training all around the world and to be able that you were talking about Fiverr and getting it translated and all this stuff that was brand new on the scene back then. And now it's kind of what everyone knows about, but it was just so so encouraging just to see how God works and how he just can take these little seeds, right. That we, you know, that we plan and, and, uh, and he just puts on our heart to be able to say, what can he do through us? If we just say, Hey God, you know, we're yours. And I've, I've been so encouraged by you on that to see that and to see how he has worked in and through you, like you, uh, you know, he's so super encouraging to me. So I appreciate you. And I'm just grateful that, you know, I can call you a friend. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, God is, God has gone into places where, you know, I've not even set foot. So mm-hmm. uh, this is a movement of the spirit and um, it's a discipleship movement, actually young Christians discipling orphans and vulnerable children. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I would just encourage our listeners too. you know, as, as Craig sharing and uh, this guy, he has some amazing stories of what God's done uh, around him in the lives of, of his family, but also in the lives of others. And uh, it's well chronicled, which you don't always get the uh, which which you don't always get the advantage of uh, with with people that are living on mission as as uh, Craig and his wife do. So uh, there's definitely some books. I know Urban Halo came out a while ago. That was really kind of seminal when it came to uh, promoting family based care for kids that have become separated from their families and and how to get kids back into family. Um, Subversive Jesus was a great book, which was really interesting juxtaposition because he went from Cambodia to uh, to Vancouver, Canada, and continued to to live on mission there. So uh, the Alongsiders, which is your organization, I've not read Alongsiders' story, but I know there's a book there as well. So would definitely we're going to jump into uh, Craig's newest book here soon, but would definitely encourage you guys 
guys, you know, as Craig shares in this conversation, definitely go back and check out his other works. Uh, and Brandon, we uh, we talked about Subversive Jesus the last time. So you can go to episode nine if you want to check out that conversation. And I would strongly recommend grabbing that book and reading it, too, because it uh, it's just like Subversive Mission, which you can't grab yet. But you will be you can go pre-order it, presumably right now on Amazon when this releases. Yeah. So. Yeah. Episode Great. nine, eight, I was in at the ground floor, guys. Oh, yeah. You were yeah. one of the the pioneer, you know, you were like a pioneer episode, which was, <laughs> you know, kind of painful when I go back and listen to some of them as far as, you know, what it sounded like. But that's okay. It was not not you. You weren't painful. I was, you know, so. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's been fun to fun to journey on this just to have some amazing conversations and you were definitely ground floor episode nine season one just just a long time ago man like you said a lot of life has happened this is going to be like episode 207 now so so it really has been a while 207 208 it'll come out around there october november ish but uh at any rate i I actually have a distinct memory not to fanboy too much craig but i remember (laughs) laying in a hammock uh in tanzania and I had gotten both of your books on on Kindle and and was just moved by what God was doing in your family and, and through your ministry. So, you know, I'm excited for our for our listeners to learn further from from what God's done uh, in your family and, and, and with alongsiders. You know, this is obviously a, a, a podcast all about orphan and vulnerable children. How can we love them with excellence? How can we love them as Christ does? And, you know, given that you've worked with orphans and other vulnerable populations for so long, you know, what have been, you know, some of your biggest lessons learned when it comes to effective Christ-centered ministry among the marginalized? Mm. Well, and and I say this as a Westerner, uh, and probably uh, many of your listeners are, are uh, from the United States or, or other Western countries. Uh, but the biggest lessons that I have been learning are all around power and money. Mm. And um, you can actually trace this back to, to the birth of Jesus. You look at Jesus being born in Bethlehem because there's a census being undertaken by the Roman Empire, this massive, powerful empire, much like the West. It's powerful. It's got resources. And the reason they do a census, of course, is to figure out how much tax they can collect and how many men they can conscript into the army or how many men they have to suppress with the army. So it's all about money and power right from the beginning, the twin pillars of empire. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, in the in Luke chapter 3, um, John the Baptist calls two very specific groups to repentance. He calls the tax collectors and the soldiers money and power. So right from the beginning, Jesus' upside-down kingdom is in stark contrast to the empire, this money and power. And so for me, um, and as we grapple, I think as as many of us grapple with the history of missions, the history of Westerners involved around the world, um, those two two ideas around money and power are, are what we need to grapple with. So how do we? recognizing that we do come we cannot deny we come with money and power um how do then how do we then use those in ways that are wise and don't undermine what could be bubbling up what god is wanting to do and what god is already doing around the world and so that's that for me have been have been the big lessons that i've been learning over more than 20 years living and working in the slums yeah, and I think that that's really interesting. I, I find myself when we talk about care reform, I, I, probably more often than I ought to, 
I, I go back to this, uh, this lyric from a mid nineties hip hop song by the Wu Tang clan, which is a uh, cash rules, everything around me. I, for whatever reason, I've quoted that in academic podcasts, but it really, uh, now, of course, us as Christians, we know that Christ is king, but the way that the world often operates is exactly how you're describing. It's, it's power and it's money. You know, along those lines, when we recognize, you know, I, I saw this gentleman on you know Twitter who has a great following, really thoughtful stuff. I enjoy kind of reading his tweets, but he recently started doing like this orphan care type of like push, you know, uh, on his, on his site. And, and I just keep watching it. And what he's saying is nobody cares. These orphans support this orphanage, like kind of do all this stuff. And to me, I just kind of can't help but think, no, this is actually a multi-billion dollar industry, you know, around orphan care and, and all of that. And that money really does say a lot. And it does say that people care but when we recognize that that these are the two pillars of the empire, you know, as you say, this uh, the power and and money, how do we, you know, as people that that want to bring the kingdom of God, which is you know, alternate to the empire, how do we subvert that? I mean, how do you kind of take that lesson learned after you know years and years working in this space? What does it look like to subvert those two principalities? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we start by laying laying those two things aside as much as we can. Mm. Uh, we don't come with our bulging wallets immediately as we step off the plane, um, and recognize that it's that, that God uses people to transform communities. And John Perkins says this. He says there's three three different types of people that trans- transform communities. There's the remainers, those who are insiders who stay there to to build their community. There's the returners, those who've left to get education or career, but they come back to be a part of rebuilding their community. And then there's relocators, or as I call them in my book, outsiders. So people like myself who have chosen to move into a community. In my case, my wife and I 20 years ago moved into a Cambodian slum and lived there for for many, many years up until last year, actually. Um, To be a part of rebuilding those communities right there on the ground at a grassroots level, but not at the center, not as the superheroes, but as the sidekicks. Um, and we get we get the honor and the privilege of walking alongside those who are insiders or remainers, those who are there in the community and will be there much, you know, long after we've left, long after we've gone um to be a part of the transformation and you know again let's trace it back to jesus the feeding of the five thousand you've got first of all jesus sends out his disciples two by two so there's that missional call but he strips them of their possessions doesn't he he says don't go with bulging wallets go go and you know be a part of the hospitality that that community is offering you and then immediately they come back. They've seen all kinds of miracles and they're faced with another massive, you know, area of need, 5,000 people hungry. And their first response, they haven't quite learned the lesson is should we take half a year's wages and, you know, well, actually their first response is send them away. So their first response right. is paralysis and apathy. Their second response is the, is the response of charity is should we take half a year's wages and, you know, buy lots of food from outside. Um, Jesus doesn't accept either paralysis or charity. Mm. He actually asks them to, you participate in feeding them, 
but together with the resources that are already there in the community, which are in the hands, ironically and beautifully, of a little boy who has so pathetically little that um, anyone who's involved in, you know, transformation or charity work would be, well, well, the resources of the community are too few to be a part of this miracle. Mm. Um, but right there we see the first instance of ABCD, you know, asset-based community development right there in the Bible. Yeah, no, literally, as you were talking, I was just like, this is... This is ABCD, which you mentioned in the book. And, and of course, we, Brian Fickard and others have been on the show that, that really support that. And it, it's awesome, man. You know, and, and as we think about this dynamic here, um, because we do live in a globalized world, there is a disparity, you know, going from one country to the next, whether you're in New Zealand or, or out here on the West Coast of the U.S. like us. And we're talking about places like Cambodia or Sub-Saharan Africa or kind of fill in the blank. There are these disparities, right? And a lot of our listeners are based in the U.S., but of course, listeners throughout, you know, when it comes to this work of supporting orphan care ministries in the global south, you know, from your experience, what what role should, you know, what, what role would you say that Western organizations should be playing when it comes to caring for OVC, you know, in, in other countries? What, what, what should and what could that look like when you recognize not only the disparity, but also just the kind of globalized world that we live in? What, what does that even look like? Yeah, I think there are, there are roles to be played um, from the periphery. Again, placing people at the center. What are the assets already in the community? And then how do we strengthen the hand of those who are already there, are already spearheading? Um, how do we come alongside them? And uh, perhaps there's training, perhaps there is some resources that need to be redistributed wisely and carefully, not leading with those. Um, let me give you an example. Um, one of the, one of the lo alongsiders in Malawi, I was asking her how she how she chose her little sister, and she said that um, she comes from a village that's notorious for trafficking and prostitution. And um, we asked the alongsiders to pray and choose their own little brother or sister. Again, power goes to the people at the grassroots. We don't choose a little brother or sister for them. They choose. So she's there praying one day and looking through the window, actually a, a, an opening in the mud house that she lives in. I've been there to visit. And she looks across the lane and she sees a little girl named Esther being taught how to dance seductively for men by her own family. And in that moment, Rachel realizes that, that God is placing Esther right in front of her eyes to be her little sister, to be the one that she walks alongside, that she invests in. And so right there we have the revelation from God. We have a sense of ownership. In Rachel's heart, a sense of responsibility, not towards me or anybody else, but between her and God and her and that family. And Rachel begins to walk alongside Esther. And of course, all, all that goes, you know, all the goodness that flows out of that, helping Esther get back into school, um, you know, being aware of warning signs of trafficking or those types of things. And obviously connecting Esther into the local church. So she has that support network and that spiritual framework. So all of those things happen on the ground. Those are the most important things that are happening. How do we strengthen Rachel's hand? How do we bring some training to Rachel? Um, for, for in the alongsiders case, how do we get a comic book, a discipleship curriculum, a comic book into the hands of Rachel every month 
so that she has a framework and a structure to disciple um, Esther with. So there are roles around the periphery. But again, I just come back to the people are central, the local people are central, and what they do, their sense of ownership between them and God and them and those they're serving is absolutely central. Yeah, and that's a great segue into um, the book, Submersive Mission. Uh, again, it's it's a great, great book. I don't have any cool hip-hop references like Brandon, but I'm not nearly as cool as Brandon. You can just look at the beard and know that. I have this little, you know, Don Johnson from the 80s stubble <laughs> on my face, and Brandon's got a Whit Van Winkle. But other than that, you know, I uh, it does remind me. I mean, one of the, the, all this conversation, I don't know if you ever watched Poverty, Inc., but it reminds me of some of the conversations we had with Michael Miller about that back in the day and some of the stuff you know, hearing the, it's easy to have a heart for the poor, but it, it, it's the hard part is having a mind for the poor. And that idea of, you know, hearing from people that are actually in poverty of what, what is needed and hearing from people saying, well, why, you know, why do you ask for money for orphanages in the, in these, you know, Kenya and other countries? They said, well, cause we know people will fund them. And it's this, it's just this terrible cycle that if we don't do something different, it will continue to repeat itself over and over. And so I, I love the, the uh, discussion and conversation in Subversive Mission that you have. And it really revolves around this, uh, this uh, Ephesians 4.11. You know, you kind of, as, as we, we say here, in this, it's, it's, you place kind of a new missiological lens on it. it you know, and that verse says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Can you just kind of explain to uh, our audience the, this framework of working cross-culturally and how you came up with the insider-outsider application of this verse? Yeah. Um, so, so most of us are familiar with this framework, aren't we? The fivefold ministry. Mm -hmm. um, that these are the things that, you know, we all have different callings, we all have different ways to, to serve. Um, but as I, as I kind of grappled with that passage, I realized that these, these roles make the most sense, at least how we've defined them, um, for insiders. So, so perhaps you're a pastor in Seattle, or you're a prophetically gifted, you know, person on the, on, on, in Chicago. You lead, you know, you speak out against injustice in Chicago. Or perhaps you're an evangelist in um, in Houston, Texas. So all of those things make perfect sense when we are insiders, when we are part of that culture. But as soon as we get on a plane or get on a bus or whatever it takes to get to a place where we hold more power and resources than the than those who are local people, um, that dynamic changes. Especially if we're people who are committed to local ownership and we want to create things that will last long after we leave. And we know that with COVID, many, many missionaries and foreign workers left and their ministries ended mm -hmm. or, or dramatically scaled down. And so we have to grapple all over again with what does it mean to come as an outsider? And so this is actually a, a brilliant framework for thinking about our role. So let's say you're a pastor in Seattle, you get on a plane, you go to Nairobi, you want to serve. And um, the role that I would suggest you take on is not that of a pastor, but that of a midwife, helping local Christian leaders to give birth to their own church, their own communities of faith. 
when you are a you know gifted prophetically you're a prophet you don't go as a prophet to lead the marches on the streets of Phnom Penh you go as an ally to amplify the voices of local prophets um, the same with the apostle you don't go to start new things uh, you go to catalyze as a catalyst the visions that God has already placed in the hearts of local leaders. And there's a whole lot of reasons around that. But one of them is, again, coming back to the sense of ownership. Same with evangelists. Uh, we go not to not because we bring Jesus to any place. Um, Jesus is already there. God is already in conversation with people. And so we go as seekers seeking to hear what God, what conversation God is already having with people in a particular culture and context. And finally, as teachers, you may be a gifted teacher. Again, the, the calling is not to come and just dump all your knowledge and expertise, but to come as a guide who helps local people discover the truth and the solutions for themselves, because then they will have that greater sense of ownership to take those things forward and implement them themselves, whether you're there or not. Yep. So this is a posture change. Yeah. And I love that. Like you said, it's that posture change, right? It's not a, we have the answers posture where, you know, whatever that posture that you talked about money, power, and this, we're coming from here, we're going to quote unquote, bring, you know, hope to the less fortunate or bring, you know, go serve the less fortunate or whatever. It's a posture of, we are brothers and sisters learning from each other in ways that, you know, we can, and, and we know nothing about these cultures that we're going to when, when you go in. Right. And that it's a totally, you know, as you said, it's an upside down, it's subversive. It's, it's, it's something that is not what we have been taught for the most part and what most churches are, are doing and teaching that, that, so with that, and let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into, um, that evangelist seeker, um, uh, whatever you know the 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 lens so to speak how how can we be that what does that look like it actually i mean uh, you know full disclosure it's one of it's probably my favorite chapter in the in the book um reading about this um it's just it, it was so good but just can you just talk about that what that actually looks like um in practice and use maybe some of the examples from the book sure i i mean let let's be real, the way that we understand the gospel is through our own cultural lenses. And so um, as we as we seek to understand who Jesus is in our life and what Jesus has done for us, uh, we're understanding that through our own experiences and culture. And so when we go to another culture, uh, the likelihood that we are communicating in a way that makes any sense at all um, is, is pretty distant. Um, so just take John 3.16. Um, you know, God loved the world so much. Um, in Buddhist culture in, in Cambodia, where, where I've lived for many, many years, love is something that you are seeking to, to detach yourself from. So how could a God love? Um, and, and so on and so on. So there's so much packed into there. To, you know, we use that verse because it speaks to us. It speaks to us. We're, we're people who want to who press into love. Um, so when you go to a different culture, actually, the idea is to not go with the answers, but to go as someone who's seeking, what is the conversation that God's already having with these people in their own, perhaps even within their own religious framework? So let me give you an example. And this might be a little bit scary for some people to grapple with, but let me just share a personal example. Uh, my wife is Cambodian and her mother 
um, grew up in a Buddhist home, grew up on the knee of her mother, again, so the grandmother, um, telling her the stories, the ancient myths and legends that, that Buddha spoke of. And Buddha, in Cambodian context, Cambodians understand that Buddha spoke of one who would come after him, who would be greater than him, who would have discs in his hands and his feet and would be known as the king of peace, the king who brings peace. And so when they went through the Khmer Rouge years and escaped through the jungle to the refugee camps, um, my, my wife's mother and my wife was about five years old. My wife's mother on arrival in the refugee camp, hearing about this Jesus from local Cambodian Christians for the first time, recognized this was the one that Buddha had prophesied. Now, that was a local myth, mythology, a local story that was rooted in culture and religion that contained the seeds that God used to introduce her to Jesus. And, um, you know, she became a follower of Jesus and, and the rest is history. But we need to have eyes to see that God is using these types of what, what Don Richardson calls redemptive analogies, um, or they're buried in culture, but they don't even have to be these big overarching things where you've found the key that unlocks the whole, you know, cultural mythology. It's just, what is God saying to this person? Rather than bringing a formula, rather than bringing four steps that we've memorized and or tracked, what is God in conversation with this person and these people already about? Yeah, yeah, so good. And there's so many other, I mean, there are other cool examples in that and you know it really stems from scripture talking about paul with the unknown god in athens and you know and listening to them and be able to say okay now you know here's here's how it leads to you know the the, the gospel and and the other um uh part about that that i that i loved was that the talking about those as you said you call i don't know if you call them this or this was another somebody else i can't recall but the redemptive analogies right so that idea of that's basically what that is right look for those redemptive analogies what you just talked about there and, yeah. and uh don, don richardson um i believe coined that term in in the peace child the book that he wrote about his work in i believe papua new guinea that's right that's right that is right yep i mean you know you wrote it but my i actually use that example with my kids today when I when I was uh, talking about this interview and, and they gave me a look like, ooh, that doesn't sound like a good culture. Um, and uh, <laughs> some interesting stories of things that are that are uh, that are going on that, you know, it is eye opening. But again, we learn them. And if we don't if you don't have that learning posture, you never will learn. You'll go in just, you know, banging a drum. And sometimes that drum just makes noise that uh, that people get annoyed with and, and end up never listening. So it's pretty different, isn't it? The, the posture of a seeker. Um, you know, in contrast to this triumphalistic kind of, I know the answers, I know everything already arriving off the plane. Um, very, very different posture. Absolutely. And it's slow, right? Which we never like. Yep. That's right. That's right. Well, and, I, and, and to me, I, I think it also kind of challenges us theologically. Like when we, when we say something that I've heard for the last 20 years, which I absolutely agree, and you've already said it in this conversation, Craig, which is, God is already at work in this situation before we ever arrive. And that's absolutely true. Yep. But are we willing, like from the example that you gave, um, to recognize that maybe God is actually going to use a Buddhist prophecy, you know, to actually point people towards him, right? There's a, there's a, you know, having lived in Africa for as long as I did, 
there's a theologian named John Mbiti, John S. Mbiti, and he talks about, you know, when the gospel, you know, came uh, down into Africa, he was basically saying, look, a lot of these are monotheistic, uh, you know, uh, religions and traditions, and we already were worshiping God, but what you brought was Jesus. So it's kind of that, that are, are we comfortable with, with going into a place and they're saying, yeah, no, we already know God, but, but thank you for bringing Jesus, you know, and like Jesus who actually helps us understand who God fully is, you know, it, it, that, that's almost like a challenge, you know, theologically. And perhaps it's the way that we're kind of raised in the West to assume that we're the ones that are going to bring this in, you know, we'll say, you know, of course, Jesus is the savior and we're talking about him. But it's almost kind of like similar to what you're saying. Um, we almost assume our centrality within whatever that move of God is going to be. Whereas just like, re- as opposed to just recognizing, look, God, the people are already worshiping God here. But can we, you know, be a part of just saying, hey, this is Jesus, you know, and now they get the full revelation of what it means to to follow Jesus and how to find their way to the father. Um, yeah. So anyways, yeah. well, I mean, the, the missionaries in Cambodia made a very big mistake in the early days. Um, when they arrived, they saw that Cambodians used incense to worship their ancestors. And so um, they immediately said Christians can't use incense, which was so central to the way the mm. Cambodians worship and has been a stumbling block and an obstacle for decades amongst those who want to follow Jesus in their family. Um, in Mongolia, they made a, a wiser choice where they saw that people would, you know, yak milk was central to their ways of worship. And so as they milked their yak or drank yak milk, they would toss a glass up in the air for the gods. And so the missionaries said, well, why don't you, why don't you recognize that Jesus is Lord of Lords and toss that yak milk up for Jesus? So don't, don't give up your yak milk. It's so central to who you are. <laughs> But offer it to Jesus instead, and 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 you know, as a result, that obstacle is not there. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. I mean, a lot of people think you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you. It's no. It can be a both and. And what does that look like? And and that's where I, I, yeah. And it's not syncretism, too. By the way, that's not what you're saying. Um, it is a no. It's pointing to Jesus. And how can we help them fill in that blank as Paul did uh, in in Acts? So yeah, well, I, I also think like if we actually reflect on our own background, a lot of the old Western hymns were written from like bar, like like people gathering around the bar and like singing drinking songs, and they turned those into like Christian hymns. And we would and we would look at that and be like, no, those are a bunch of you know like the people in the bar, like they're wasting their life away, they're giving into alcoholism and promiscuity and whatever. But God can redeem those kind of forms as well, you know, and actually use those to also bring people closer to him, you know. And I think that if we actually have that kind of sober realization of our own history and our own background, we'll see the ways that he's actually active in those places, too. Yeah. Yeah. The other the other scripture that has spoken to me around this is in James. It says every good thing comes from God. Do we have, do we have eyes in a heart to recognize that if it's good it ultimately came from God. Mm. Yep. Yep. 
That's why, you know, this, uh, this apparently is the music podcast. So there's a lot of music out there that, uh, you know, Brandon's bringing up. But yeah, there's a lot of great music out there. And I use that example a lot of times that is not quote unquote Christian music, but it's, you know, inspired. A lot of it is inspired, you know, flat out inspired by God. No question about it. Right. Just the, the gifts and talents he's given different people to do different things. Right. And so just to say, no, it's secular music. You can't listen to it. That's just ridiculous right but yet it, it happens so anyway we're going to move on um there's one other uh you know um dynamic here we want to talk about and i'd love to to dive into a little bit deeper you talked the first one you used was this pastor midwife um you know insider outsider thing and so you write in your book in traditional mission work outsiders typically start a ministry and place themselves in leadership roles then gradually pass on that mantle to local people yet this process of nationalization or localization rarely results in true ownership by local people through our years in Cambodia we we had learned that it was much better to help local leaders birth something themselves which they could fully own and shape from the beginning you know, we'd love to just, you know, learn from you um, from those years in Cambodia. Can you, you share one example of where localization wasn't successful and what that autopsy was? And then maybe share another uh, example where an outsider supported uh, local leadership to birth something new and how that was successful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I write this having failed in every way possible <laughs> myself. <laughs> yep. You know, yep. uh, you know, if there's a wrong way to do it, I've already done it. <laughs> So, you know, I think um, we we go wrong. We go wrong. Yep. Often we take on those attributes of God, omniscience. We think we know everything, um, you know, omnipotence. We, we People treat us as if we have all the power and the answers and omnipresence. We never leave. We, ne yep. we should be stepping back. We should be giving local people space, but we, we don't. Um, you know, I've done this. And, it, you know, we're talking in the context of the pastor midwife dynamic. So let's talk about churches, you know. We, we plant churches, and then we try to hand it over. And very often, we've planted them in ways that um, are simply not replicable. So that church may continue to go on, especially if you keep sending money from outside, it'll, mm -hmm. it'll keep going. Um, but, you know, just take a simple example. We go in and we, we our first way of reaching into the community is by doing te is teaching English, um, because that's what we have. That was what, what will attract people to us. Um, and yet that's simply not replicable for local people mm. very often. They're not going to be, uh, you know, teaching English. Uh, that's not something that is going to be an outreach that, that works very well for them in most cases. Um, and so right from the very beginning, we're using, we're using techniques and strategies that can't be replicated and are not owned by local people. The same goes with, you know, we go in and we rent a building because we're used to having a building in the United States. We, you know, we rent a building. It's, it's no big deal. But we haven't, we haven't been self-aware enough or aware of the context enough to know that very often a local, a local congregation doesn't have the resources to rent a building. And so they never plant another church because they don't have the money to rent another building. Mm -hmm. So we are creating these um, structures and strategies that are not replicable and are not owned. Uh, when we leave, um, very often that sense of ownership is not there. And so we fail. And now we we may plant one church, it never becomes an, it never becomes a second or a third or a, or a church planting movement. And so, you know, I my my training was in community development. I did a master's in international development. And I've learned a lot from community development field, some 
amazing ideas and principle. But over, over recent years, I've been much more interested in, in movements because very often our community development projects can tend towards being a little bit transactional. So these are our inputs, these are our outputs. Check mm -hmm. it out in the log frame. Um, but movements rely on people's hearts being transformed mm -hmm. much less than what inputs are taking place. And so it's transformational. And um, again, just coming back to the alongsiders movement, when someone captures the vision and we say to them, we're not going to give, we don't have any money. It's just a simply, this is a way of training your young people, you know, whether they're in the slums of Kigali in Rwanda or the villages of, you know, somewhere in Kenya. Um, this is a way of equipping your young people to make disciples. And we say to them, every, every nation has a major religion that is sustained by that nation. And somehow we think that if we're to see Christianity take hold, then it must be sustained from outside that nation or it could never take, you know, it will never take root. But, you know, take Nepal. Hinduism is the major religion there and it's, and it's 99 to 100% maintained from within Nepal. So then we say to them, if you're to have a discipleship movement, then it needs to be locally sustained. It's not going to be having money coming in from outside. So there in Rwanda, a young guy named Andrew lives in the in, in very poor community in Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda. And he caught the vision of training up his young people in his church um, to become alongside us, to make the simple but powerful commitment to walk alongside those who walk alone, one vulnerable child each. That movement has now spread. He's got about a thousand alongside us. He's planted three more discipleship movements in Rwanda that also are heading towards a thousand. So there's about 4,000 alongside us, um, absolutely transforming one by one over multiple years. This is not some event where people put up their hand and then go home. Mm -hmm. This is a weekly, if not daily, commitment to study these discipleship materials walk alongside relationally for multiple years. And at the end of the day, those young, those little brothers and sisters now are growing up and becoming alongsiders themselves. I remember, um, let me just, just finish with this brief story. I was at a, an alongsiders camp in Cambodia and a little, uh, one of the alongsiders gets up. She says, uh, my little sister has an announcement to make. She, her little sister gets up. She's actually about a foot taller than her alongside her at this point. Because, and, and her little sister takes the, um, takes the microphone and says, my, my, my alongside her might be small in stature, but she is mighty in the kingdom of God. She's walked alongside me for six years. And now today I'm ready to announce that I'm ready to become an alongside her myself. And so that's, that's where, where you see the ownership, right? Yep. That's where you see the sustainability. And it's no Craig is nowhere to be seen. That's <laughs> I'm right. at the back. I'm at the back just just bawling my eyes out because God is at work. That's that's my role. That's right. And it's not a and I think sometimes we, we see it as like a puppeteer. And that's what we say is the well, we're not there, we're not seen, but we're but we're 
controlling everything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, no, you literally are, you said catalyzing. You are the midwife. You aren't taking credit, not only not taking credit, but you're allowing them to actually lead and own and not allowing because it's never ours, right? So it's not even like we have to give. It's a, it's in you. And all we're doing is, is saying, we believe in you. Yeah. And we yeah. know Jean, you can Jean do Johnson it. says this in her book, We Are Not the Hero. She says, start on day one as you want to see on day a thousand. In other exactly. words, don't start with you as the leader and then day a thousand, day one thousand, try to hand it over. Start as you mean to continue. That's right. And by the way, that was the book you recommended in the first time we had the uh, interview. I didn't go and back I'm and look at that. still recommending I know. You, can't, you better have a new one today, too. I, 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 I bought it I right do. after that. Well, good. I know. And you will. But we'll get to that in a second. But uh, but yeah, I just I'm just so encouraged by this because too often we hear we're here to work ourselves out of a job. And yeah. the fact is we should never have that job in the first place. Yes. And, yes. and that's the reality. It doesn't mean we don't help. It doesn't mean we don't encourage. It doesn't mean we don't give, you know, you know, use our gifts and talents in some way at some point, but that is only in the context of these people doing what God has led them to do. And, yes. and we're just there, you know, being able to listen and encourage and love. And yeah. what does that look like? Well, it, we can't tell you what it looks like in any given context, but mm -hmm. I, I remember, I mean, people always ask me, what would you have done differently? It, you know, with, with law Providence in Honduras, when we were, when we were overseeing that, that um, everything down there, and I said from day one, I would have said, and I wasn't involved at that point, but I would, have, I would never have had any outside, you know, Western leader there. It never would have been that. And that was the one because it's it's not even a work itself out of the job. It's just they will always look to other mm. to say, what's that? What's that next thing? And there was another example where we went there to the local community leader and, and he said, all we need is money from you and we can we can do all these different things. And I just looked at him and I said, what then we're going to if we come back in five years, you're going to ask for another check. You have everything you need here. What does that look like for you to actually dream about you as a community and what you guys can do? And, and so sometimes that's the, as you said, that catalyst um, can be there. So anyway, I'll shut up now and uh, let, let Brandon kind of bring us home because it is getting to that point. Well, before I ask that though, I mean, because the thing is, there is an industry when it comes to international development, there mm -hmm. is an industry when it comes to orphan care ministries and you know, there is this part of me, you know, being in senior leadership of a nonprofit where I'm like wondering, what does this look like on the back end? Like, what is this like? Like, how can we actually subvert the entire system? You know, and, and we can promote a certain type of model. We've we've worked with different organizations. We facilitate a community practice. And, um, you know, we've worked with an organization that we said, you know, we want local leadership like we want to invest in locals and maybe that was even maybe that's not even the right approach because you know i just kind of like wonder like man how can we actually subvert this at an industry-wide level or is it just each organization has to prayerfully figure out what that looks like i love you know what you guys do at alongsiders and how I mean, it, it seems very decentralized, not only because you have these different kind of chapters, but really it's the initiative of each individual that is identifying the child that they want to walk alongside and disciple. And, and I just love that. And, and it seems very replicable. Um, but it, to be honest, working in this space and pretty much 
most of the, I don't know if I'm, if I'm giving away too much, but it seems like most of the guests and myself included that even come onto the show, we have, we have to wrestle with the fact that maybe this isn't, maybe, maybe, maybe our investments are somewhat, uh, misapplied or I, I don't know, like, like the, there has to be some way at an industry wide level for Christians that want to do right by orphans and vulnerable children or want to do right in international community development, but to do it in a way where we're not just feeding into these ongoing power dynamics. I don't know that, that, that might be, that might be a whole other, uh, series of podcasts. I don't know if you have any, uh, any advice for us, Craig, as far as like, just that, I mean, this is big industry here, you know, what does it look like for Christian organizations within this space? I mean, again, it comes back to money and power and we need, we need um, examples. We need case studies. We need to tell the stories. Um, and so let me just share a little story around COVID, right? Lockdown in Cambodia. Um, people are actually getting really hungry. We're behind barricades. Soldiers are stopping us from leaving our streets. Um, and so we get on a Zoom call with the alongside us leaders. And they, um, you know, they say, you know, we could try to get rice in. We could try to truck some stuff in. But, you know, what we're seeing is the military and the local village chiefs is taking the resources for themselves. It's it's promoting greed. It's not going to work. There's a role for relief. But what we decided to do was um, put, a, put a little table outside each of our houses with a sign that says, if you have extra, add to the table. If, you need, if you're in need, help yourself. And then we would just put a little, whatever we could spare. And then we would tag our friends on Facebook. This is a Cambodian movement. It's all in Cambodian. And so they did that. And that movement started to go viral around Cambodia as Christians and non-Christians began to put a table outside the front of their house, that spirit of generosity and sharing amongst neighbors. They had the, the benefit and the blessing of being a part of what God was doing in that community. Um, now, it's great if a truck drops off a bag of rice. Great. You needed that rice. But how much more beautiful often if there are those who are already participating from the community. With alongsiders around the world, we said to them during COVID, a lot of you are, we, a lot of them were saying we're in real need. What we did um, financially was we said, whatever your alongsiders can raise, we'll match it. And so um, if they could raise 50 kilos of rice to give to their neighbors, then we would match it with another 50 kilos. So that the next time there's a starvation event, um, they know that they can start. They know that they have a lot to offer rather than their first instinct being, how do we contact foreigners who will give us resources? So simple stories like that. I'm not saying that either of those are necessarily the perfect way to do it, but we need to tell these stories so that we have other examples of how things can work. So good, Craig. Wow. Uh, yeah. My, my uh, I, I love this conversation around how to, uh, how to engage in thoughtful missiological, you know, ways that, um, 
even the word empower, like I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'm sensitive even around that word. There's, there's two different types of empowerment. There is exogenous empowerment where we come in and give you power. And then there's this endogenous empowerment where you actually already have the power. It's just helping bring that out within the people. And it's really more the latter is what we should be going for. So this conversation is just, uh, uh feeds my soul. So again, guys, the, the book is subversive mission. It is on InterVarsity press and, uh, would love for you guys to check that out. But before, uh, before we uh, get you out of here, Craig, uh, we also want to know what you're reading. And uh, I think you've probably quoted five, six, seven, a dozen different people, you know, just in this conversation now. Uh, we would love to hear, you know, what have you read, watched, or listened to? You can't do the same one that you gave six years ago. Uh, that, that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children uh, with excellence. Well, look, in, in, my, in my book, Subversive Mission, I also cover five most common blind spots that we come with as Westerners. And one of those is really has been a journey for me, the, the blind spot of individualism. Um, I don't think we realize in the West how, especially those of us who are from a European background, how deeply rooted in our individualism we are. And um, some of the ideas I drew on in that chapter are from a book called The Geography of Thought by Richard Nesbitt. And basically, he points out that, um, you know, those of us from a European background, um, we trace our history back to Greece, where they were able to, you know, go hunting, fishing. They can get their food easily um, without needing anybody else. They can even go off to Athens and have a debate and argue with other people about philosophy. There's no, there's no ramifications. But if you look at, if you trace Eastern thought and culture, it goes back to China, where they're growing rice. And um, to grow rice, you need irrigation, you need the cooperation of all your neighbors. And so right from the very foundations of Eastern thought and many of our indigenous cultures, um, this would be the same too, is this idea of harmony and working together, of thinking of others, working in the community. And in contrast, our European thought goes back to these ideas of individual liberty, freedom for all. And you saw that worked out during COVID, didn't you? I mean, just fascinatingly different responses to um, what was happening with COVID based on very much our cultural lens that we're looking at life through. So that book has spoken to me deeply. It's challenged me. Um, just living in a culture that is not individualistic has been a year after year stripping that back and just examining it's not right or wrong to be individualistic it's just to be aware of where we're coming from no that's really really good and and uh yeah reminds me of a book that i'll say for my own uh recommendation in the outro uh along those same lines you know you're learning from books you're learning from other resources and you're learning from people uh, maybe this would be the same as six years ago. I, I don't recall what it was then. But what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Look, look, so many, but I'll I'll share this from a, a grassroots Cambodian um, transformational guy who's working in the in some of the poorest communities in Cambodia. His name's Mias Ni. And he shared um, this this Cambodian proverb, it's an ancient Cambodian proverb, it takes a spider to repair its own web. And that has been just a constant reminder for me. It takes a spider to repair its own web. And so our role is to <laughs> get out of the way of the spider, support and encourage the spider, but recognize that ultimately, if we want transformation, it will be led and instigated by insiders. 
That's so good. And and that is a, a, a core tenet of the book. So again, I would encourage our listeners to go out and pick up this book. Uh, Craig, it has been a, a blessing and an honor to uh, get to talk with you uh, today. And and uh, thank you for all that you're doing to, to point us in a good direction uh, with a Christ-centered uh, OVC and other missions work. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Well, that was a, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Craig is one of those people that is really thought provoking and uh, he just brings a different lens to this space. You know, even when he says, you know, international development background, he was in the missions field for years, you know, you kind of uh, meet those people, you know, and sometimes that's two different people, of course, and you kind <laughs> of have a, an idea of kind of their approach, but you know, the, the word subversive, which I think you yeah. said that was the word of the day. Yeah. Uh, crazy. <laughs> subversive Funny. like that. That's a very applicable term, not only to his last couple books, but, uh, but, but to just kind of how he operates. So just really uh, great to engage with Craig. Uh, what kind of stuck out to you, man? what do you think? Yeah. You know, I, I just, I love Craig. I mean, he is a dude who says what he thinks, which, you know, causes people to, you know, they, they don't like some of the things he says. And that's what I love about the podcast medium, quite frankly, is Craig is a dude. If you follow him on Twitter, if you follow him on whatever social media, he'll say stuff that, you know, to get you thinking he'll do blog posts to just, you know, that just are scathing sometimes, you know, <laughs> and just against some of the things. And, you know, you're like, well, you know, why don't you say what you're for? And he does, but if people take any one thing, they could be like, oh, well, I don't want to ever want to talk to that guy. But you get him in a, in a, a conversations. I've been able to share, you know, coffee, tea with him. I've been able to, you know, share meals with him. As I said in the, in the conversation, I was able to spend some time at his house. And, you know, when you share a meal in a home, and the cool thing was, it, was, it wasn't like me and Craig hanging out um, uh, in the house by themselves. It was literally a full table of the community that were there eating together. And so I just love that. He's a guy that doesn't just talk about this stuff. He's a guy who lives it out. And that's my, that's my thing with Craig is, is I love these conversations we can have with him on here. Unfortunately, we've only had a couple of them. I wish we could have more, but because we can get into the nuances of it, we can hear stories, we can hear his heart, right? We don't have the video, unfortunately, but, but when you have that, um, you can hear the tone, Right. And it's not an angry tone. It's not a tone of, you know, I know everything. As he said, he's he's learned this stuff by by doing it wrong, by messing up mm -hmm. and by doing it in ways that were hurtful and destructive. And same with me, as I said, like I've done things and it's like, man, I, I wish I wouldn't have done it. But I, I, can I help others not go through that? Right. Can I help, you know, avoid the pitfall? So anyway, you know, I don't necessarily want to go. I could go on and on and on, as you know about this and we've talked about all this stuff over the years but I, I mentioned the episodes that reminded me of go back listen to the the michael miller episodes two-part on poverty inc go listen to the brian fickert when helping hers go listen to craig's episode nine that he was in before and there's so many others but those are the ones that just really come to mind that are on these same things and you'll hear people saying very similar things but i can tell you the the um uh, kind of paradigm he puts it into in subversive mission is so good. Mm -hmm. It is so good folks. Like 
I, I mean, I don't even need to see any more than that. Like, I, I so strongly recommend this book yeah. that, um, like, I was, my daughter's going over to Kona to do YWAM uh, here in about a week, week and a half. And I was, I literally went on Amazon today. I, f- I forgot that it wasn't coming out till November. I mistook it with from another book that we talked about. But um, I was bummed that it wasn't available before she goes, you know. So, anyway. You can ship it to her. Yeah, you can ship I know, it to her. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, it, so. it, it, it is it is such a great book, and it's kind of one of those books that I would I would want that reading if I was teaching an intercultural studies class or a missiology class. I would make that one of the readings. Like you know, we're going to go through this text on the side, read this on your own, and write a report on it because yep. it it speaks to these multinational dynamics that unfortunately we gloss over too much, even in our even in our. Um, in our, in our well-intentioned, good-hearted approaches to live out the Great Commission, sometimes we just get, um, you know, so myopic or just kind of so tunnel vision on this is how I'm going to do it, this is how I'm going to do it, this is how it gets done. And you don't realize that you're, you know, stepping on the people that you are supposed to be serving alongside and serving from under. Yeah. And this book puts that in its proper place and, mm-hmm. uh, and in a very thoughtful and a very biblical way. Yep. So yeah, this, this, this book was, was phenomenal. It was so good, man. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm going to have to check out that other book. What was the book he recommended last time? Oh, it was, uh, we are not the heroes. I believe is what it's called. It's Gene heroes. Johnson. Okay. It's Gene Johnson. I have it here in my office, but I, I believe that's the name of it. You can go back to episode nine, okay. check out the show notes. It's in there, but yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I, uh, yeah. I, I remember that because, um, yeah, I mean, he, rem- I, I, he's the only one to ever recommend that book and he talked about it again. So it was just, just that's good. Jumped that's out. Good. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, as he was giving his recommendation on the book by Nesbitt, um, it made me think of what my recommendation was going to be. And it is along the same lines. And it, this is not a, this is not a, like a Christian book or anything. It's an anthropological book, mm-hmm. but you know, he was sharing on, you know, all of these lessons learned in Southeast Asia and, and which is just amazing, you know, um, having lived in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I had a book that was recommended to me early on, uh, and it, it was by an author, an anthropologist named David Morans, and the book is called African Friends and Money Matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, this book, it, it was like things that were perplexing to me because I am an outsider. Like, like I just, I, I didn't know, like I came from a different culture. You don't always realize all the different uh nuances of your own worldview or how you came to certain conclusions and you can come into these cross-cultural situations and you're just like, wait, they do what? Why do they do that? And they're looking at you like, what is this Mzungu doing? Why does he do that? Mm-hmm. This book um, by David Moran's African Friends and Money Matters, uh, highly recommended to those that are engaged in Africa, um, whether you, you know, that's a field country for your organization or whether you're living there and uh, are from a different country. Um, this uh, book really helped me learn a lot and and gave me so much more empathy and, and compassion. You know, sometimes when we're in those situations cross-culturally, we just kind of scratch our heads like, why is it like this? This this helps you understand these types of resources mm-hmm. like the one that that Craig recommended and, and this, certainly this book by David Moran's as well. So uh, yeah, it, it, his recommendation spurred one of my, of my own. So definitely recommend that people go and grab African Friends and Money Matters by David Moran's. 
Well, folks, I mean, that's just a reminder of the uh, heaviness of Brandon's recommendations. Uh, he did do a hip hop recommendation earlier, too, to kind of balance it out a little bit. So you that's can right, go man. listen to the song he referred to earlier. Or you can go read this book, which I, I imagine will take you a little longer than it'll take you to listen to the song. So, but yes. no one, although, although one of those was more explicit than the other, I must admit. So. Yes, I'm Just sure to, it was. And we will not quote it because it will be explicit <laughs> podcast, which we don't want to do. Um, hopefully by saying explicit doesn't make it explicit. I hope no, that's not the I case. But so. anyway, folks, I uh, with all this, I mean... We love we doing what we get to do because we get to have conversations like we had today. We hope that you love listening to them, learning from them, and hopefully applying them. I mean, that's what we were talking about in this conversation today is just applying these lessons that we've learned and learn from people who have been through it ahead of us, right? And have been through it in different contexts and have been through it in, in various, I mean, Brandon, you've been in multiple contexts. I've been in multiple contexts. Craig's been in multiple contexts. And I think if there's one thing we can say that is a universal truth is that we didn't know jack squat about those contexts when we went into them. And we had to learn. And it's slow. And it takes time. And it's development. It's not a transactional quick thing that we come in and do it. You got to build trust. This work, when done well, happens at the speed of trust, happens at the speed of relationship. And they have to have a humble learning posture. And I hope that and pray that everything you're doing, you're learning from and that everything you're listening to on this podcast you're learning from and you're using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks we hope you've enjoyed today's think orphan podcast for all the information in this week's podcast please visit us at thinkorphan.com. you too can be part of the conversation send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the think orphan facebook page thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of think orphan